0: Want to make 2017 your best year ever? Then let me be your teacher, your mentor. I've prepared special courses and webinars for you that will help you succeed and to give you access directly to me. Go to mojouniversity.com and sign up today. You have nothing to lose. Try me for 30 days and if you aren't satisfied, I guarantee you a full refund, no questions asked. Don't go it alone. Let me be your guide at mojouniversity.com. Be successful today.
1: Oh, I feel good. I knew that.
0: Hello and welcome everyone to the Manager Mojo Show. Steve Caldwell here, and I'm thrilled to introduce my special guest today, Mr. Sam Walker. Now, Sam is the Wall Street Journal's deputy editor for Enterprise, helping to direct the paper's in-depth page one news features and investigative reporting projects. Now, he's a former sports columnist. And uh, he founded the journal's prize-winning daily sports pages in 2009 and oversaw the paper's global coverage of sports news and major events over all uh, platforms, whether it's print or digital. He's the author of Fantasy Lana, a best-selling account of his attempt to win America's top fantasy baseball expert competition, of which he's a two-time champion. Uh, He attended the University of Michigan and lives in New York with his wife and two children. And today we're going to talk about his brand new book called The Captain Class, The Hidden Force That Creates the World's Greatest Teams. And I I know you're going to really enjoy this because we're going to find out a lot of leadership principles that we can apply from uh, Sam's amazing research. So Sam, welcome to the Manager Mojo Show.
1: Thank you, Steve. It's a real pleasure to be here. I appreciate it.
0: Well, I'm excited about this. This is such a fun book, and I I can't wait to uh, dive off into your thoughts about it. But before we do, why don't you share with our listeners what fun thing that you've been up to lately outside of work?
1: Well, I haven't had a lot of time lately, but I am very proud to say that I finally got my 1966 Mustang convertible running. And I fixed the throttle issues, and I am a one-man YouTube mechanic uh, who is slowly figuring out how to, how to get an old car running, and it's been a real pleasure. This weekend I did some, some serious cruising for the first time, which is a lot of fun.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I still wish I had my first uh, car, which uh, Sam actually, believe it or not, was a 1967 Mustang. And, oh, uh, nice! I, I'd love to still have that thing, but uh, you know, alas, it's long gone by now.
1: Uh, I'm sure, I'd probably rusted out.
0: Like, <laughs> I'm <laughs> sure almost. it is. Uh, yeah, the rusting—they call it. Yeah, uh, as I will say this: when I got rid of it, it still was okay, but I doubt it lasted long. <laughs> <laughs> You see a lot of rusty shells in the junkyard. It's oh, really I crazy. can, I, yeah. and, uh, you know, I may be ready to join them soon. I may be one of those rusty shells, but <laughs> no, hopefully Steve. we'll be okay. Steve, uh. no. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> Sam, uh, I, I can, first of all, let's talk about the captain class. Uh, this is a great book. It's fun, but it's, uh, it's incredibly insightful and uh, so in, in what I'd like for you to do first is why don't you share with our listeners really what the main goal of this book was. What was your mission when you started to write this?
1: Completely different from the mission I ended up with. Honestly, I mean, the fact that I'm here on on a podcast with you talking about leadership and management is not the last thing I expected to come from this uh, from this whole adventure. I I was obsessed with teams. I don't know why. I think maybe because when I was a kid, I never got to play on a great team. I had one good team in little league, and and I always envied people who had been part of great teams. And I, as I started to be a sports writer. For the journal, I spent a lot of time with elite teams, on the world's best teams, and and I really studied them closely. And you know, I thought I knew kind of what made teams great, but then I bumped into the 2004 Red Sox, and I spent a lot of time with that team. And that team did something to me that I never saw coming, which is that they seemed to be not a championship team at all, and they fell very far behind in the middle of the summer. Uh, the Yankees and you know I left them for dead everyone left them for dead and uh, they came storming back in August and they turned into this incredible formidable team and you know they had this confidence and swagger and they were you know really uh, a terrific team they went on to beat the Yankees in the ALCS and win the World Series and you know, I realized when I watched that parade that I uh, didn't understand one important thing, which is I didn't know how teams become great. I'd seen them once they already were, right. but I never saw the moment of transformation. And I thought, well, what is it? You know, what is it that allows a team to achieve something and become better than some of its parts? What's the, what's the spark? So it started very innocently. I thought, all right, I'm going to write a column for the journal. You know, it's been a couple of weeks. I'm going to identify the best teams in sports history, and then I'll just look. at their history, and I'll say, here's what they all had in common, and, you know, I'll write 900 words, and that was in 2005, so <laughs> I, went, I went down the deepest rabbit hole ever. I mean, I, I you know, it's in, it's in 12 years, and 12 years later, it's a book, and it's a book about leadership, which is now what I expected. I did not expect to come to this conclusion, but, you know, it's leadership, and it's not coaching you know i'll be very specific it's not coaching it's the internal leadership of the team that makes a difference so on a team, uh, on the teams in, in sports history that sustained greatness for the longest time, longer than any other team in their sport, they only had one thing in common, only one thing, I mean really, the only thing they had in common was that they, uh, the tenure of their greatness overlapped almost precisely with uh, the presence of one player, and to my astonishment that player was in every case the captain, the leader of the team, that's the missing link, and it was very clear, you know, and if you go farther down past the top 16 teams that I identified to the other 108. I mean, it's, it's true of them too. I mean, it's really, you know, you can have one great season, two great seasons, you know, but my uh, floor was you had to be good for at least four years. And if you want to sustain greatness and really build a culture of, of high achievement, you have to have a strong internal leader of the team and uh, a certain kind of leader, not just any leader, which uh, was the second surprise.
0: Well, I, I, think, uh, I think all of us that uh, have either played on teams uh, in sports, uh, been on those teams that you're talking about, uh, or we're responsible for building and leading teams, uh, we know uh, at, at this point uh, that, look, there's a lot of things that go into making a great team. Uh, a lot of components, and I was just fascinated by this study. And I know that uh, you know you've you've listed the teams that the top 16 that you did uh, or that you picked, and uh, it was interesting because you pulled out uh, things from other sports other than just United States. And uh, but uh, you know just for the benefit of our listeners, I want to tease them just a little bit because I want them to go buy this book and really learn. Uh, cause you did include, uh, the Yankees, but not, uh, the, the period of time that a lot of people realize it was the 49 through 53 Yankees. Uh, yeah, no,
1: that's not the team. I mean, that was, a, that was, uh, not one of the great Yankee teams. In fact, in terms of the talent that they had collected on that team, it wasn't even in the top 10. I mean, this is the end of DiMaggio and, and the beginning of Mantle, and it was really not, uh, a great Yankee team at all. Um. And not the one everyone points to, but, you know, that was Yogi Berra's team.
0: And, yep.
1: uh, you know, he's one of the great underappreciated leaders in, in sports history.
0: Well, uh, you know, I'm, I think I'm very fortunate because I grew up a baseball fanatic myself. And so I, I, I had studied uh, Yogi Berra. And uh, I I knew that this particular Yankees team was the only team in Major League history in baseball that ever won five straight World Series titles. Uh, Pretty crazy. But also during the time, I also want to point out that you picked uh, the team that I remind young people today, they don't really know what they don't know. They don't really understand how good the Boston Celtics teams were under Bill Russell no one understands anymore
1: i mean i think he's getting some of his due these days I and mean, he's sort of the nba has kind of embraced him and he's become more of a, a public person a little more comfortable with attention but they were incredible in fact i think they probably had the top record of any team in the history of sports in a major sport that i looked at they won 11 titles in 13 years figure. you know not <laughs> and not not only that, okay, but not only that. The thing that that really amazes me about them, first of all, they never had an elite player. I mean, Russell was one of the great defenders in the history of the NBA. But in terms of all the advanced statistics that you can find on the NBA, I mean, they didn't really have anyone. A couple people in the top hundred, and that was about it. This was not a team that was overflowing with talent. But here's the thing about them that. Blew me away that I did not know. So the Celtics, during that run, that thirteen-year run, which is incomparable, uh, they played in ten game sevens of a series in the playoffs. Yep. And guess what their record was?
0: Ten and zero. Ten and zero. Yep. I mean, it's just amazing
1: <laughs> when they had to win, they won. You know, and it was just a remarkable
0: achievement. And uh, people uh, that don't really understand, they just don't know. These guys refuse to lose. It yeah. was the darndest thing I've ever seen. They should have lost. There were teams that were better. For goodness sakes, Wilt Chamberlain was the dominant player of his era uh, during that period of time. Uh, the only uh, player—I mean, he was it broke the hundred-point barrier in an NBA game. But the Celtics were crazy, and and. It, It it all came down uh, as you started to discover this. Were you surprised whenever you found out that the common component happened to be the the captain of the team or the person that really wasn't the rah-rah cheerleader of that team? I was so surprised I didn't believe it. I mean, I popped (laughs) out
1: right away, and Russell was one of the first— examples because you know his rookie year they won title number one Mm -hmm. and in his final year before retired they won title number 11 and then they immediately had a losing record and went back to mediocrity so it, it overlapped completely with his tenure so it, it jumped out like that i mean there was a, there were a couple teams in there this new zealand all blacks rugby team i looked at i mean their captain they benched their captain which was one of the great boneheaded moves in the history of sports and they lost two weeks later after being undefeated for four years so you know it, it just time and again it was uncanny that that these captain's tenures were were exactly matched the winning streak now i thought it was going to be coaching I thought it was coaching, or I thought it was talent. And if it wasn't those two things, I thought it would be strategy or even money. They just seem to have more resources than other teams. But none of those things were common across all the teams. I mean, you made a good point earlier. You said, you know, it takes a lot of components to have a winning team. That's absolutely true. I'm not saying that all you need is a good captain and you're going to be an elite team. You have to have a lot of things working. But there's one thing you absolutely cannot do. Uh, which is sustained success without a, without a strong leader and it's not this is the thing that was even crazier was it's not these are not the kinds of leaders i ever would have imagined in fact they were in many ways the opposite of what i would have thought i would have thought if you asked me to pick a leader, build one in a laboratory, I'd say, all right, I'd take a superstar, someone with elite talent, and then someone who um, was charismatic, you know, a great Mm -hmm. speech maker, someone who, you know, had an aura about them, you know, made other people want to follow them. And I would say I would choose someone who was great at diffusing conflicts inside a team, was kind of a diplomat, someone who never, you know, uh, uh, roiled the waters. And none of those things were true. In fact, they were the complete opposite. They were not stars. Most of them were role players. They carried water for their teams. They hated detention. They didn't want individual accolades. They were not charismatic. They were not celebrities. They, you know, blended in and were very happy to play supporting roles and not be the stars uh, of their teams. And, you know, they were hard to manage. They could break the rules in competition. They would push the rules to the absolute limit. They would introduce conflict inside their teams, and they would always push back on any Decision from management or anywhere that they felt wasn't helping the team's goals, and none of these things were anything that I thought uh, conveyed leadership. In fact, I think if you, you know, Tim Duncan is one of these, uh, one of these captains yeah. of the great yeah. things they did at the Spurs. You know, one of his teammates said something really remarkable. He said, "If you walked into the practice," And you looked around and you were asked to tell, to say, who's the leader of the team? Duncan would probably be the last person you would pick because he's not the loudest voice in the room. He's not the charismatic rah-rah table pounder. He doesn't give orders. He, um, you know, he's a very subdued, quiet guy who, who, you know, communicates with people very intensely one-on-one, but doesn't do anything that you would associate with the behavior of, of traditional leadership.
0: I totally agree with that. And as a matter of fact, he did things, uh, I I observed when I watched the the Spurs, it was often the way he looked at a teammate that let you know he was calling them out. If you, you would, you would actually see it on camera, but people thought, well, you know, what was that look about? Well, he, he was, he was communicating with his teammates in a way that uh, apparently, they'd had conversations, and they knew exactly what he was doing.
1: That's that was one of the, there were several things, revelations that I, that in this book that I never would have imagined. And I also really looked into research and academic you know scientific research to, to see, to look for basis. And, and one of the things I found was one of the great surprises was communication. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it, but not a single one of these captains gave speeches. You, all, you think the locker room speech is the way you fire up a team. It's absolutely not. They did not do it. In fact, they all hated Most of them hated to do it and would never do it because just didn't feel comfortable doing it. Tim Duncan's one of those guys, but Duncan took it even a step further, which is he just, you know, in those interviews, I mean, he would speak in a monotone. <laughs> he shows no passion. He has the personality of a, of a vacuum cleaner. You know, he, he doesn't did. seem like he has any fire passion. But, you know, what I found was this incredible study that was done a few years ago about how teams, effective teams, communicate. And what they discovered was it's, it's – it's so, first of all, it's more important than anything, even the aggregated skill of the people on the team. It's how they communicate. And the pattern of a team, that, a great team, the way they communicate is that there's a, there's a democratic uh, sensibility. Everybody speaks and listens in, in equal measure. And uh, – and they, they talk to each other with great engagement and intensity, uh, away from the work or even inside the work. And this is what Duncan did. He wasn't a speech maker, but he was what the scientists call a charismatic connector. And these people, uh, every team has someone like that. And this person circulates widely or, or among the players, talks to them individually in very intense bursts, listening as much as they talk. And you mentioned his eyes. So you know, body language is something we don't understand very well we all think there's a, a way to use body language that, that conveys power and authority but really everyone's uh, effective way of communicating uh, is different and it has to be kind of genuine to them now what Duncan did was when he talked to people you mentioned it, you saw it too he would stare at them intensely from you mm-hmm. know three four seconds almost to an uncomfortable amount of yep. time yep. and he would he had only I, he only had three facial expressions you know, yeah. he has happy, <laughs> you know, concerned and angry, you know, yeah. and he's got three. And, but he would <laughs> convey with those with those intense facial expressions and, and uh, stares, he would convey his message very effectively. And that's the way he communicated. And you would look at him, Duncan, and say, y- you know, you would laugh if I said he was one of the great communicators in sports history. But he absolutely was. And so was Yogi Berra. Oddly enough, you know, a guy who mumbled and, you know, said incomprehensible things and, you know, never gave a speech in his life, but he um, was incredible at talking and listening and understanding pitchers, especially, and and was uh, really one of the great communicators. So what happens on these teams is they create this chemistry, this talkative culture where everybody feels empowered to speak up. And, you know, problems are addressed in the moment. Nothing festers, nothing lingers. If they're doing something wrong, it's going to get brought up. It's going to get addressed and dealt with right in the moment. And that's crucial to uh, a team achieving lasting success.
0: No question. Uh, accountability amongst one another. And uh, one of the things that that I teach uh, managers and leaders is that if you're doing all of the talking uh, and nobody on your team is communicating, nobody's doing anything but just listening to whatever thoughts you have, uh, you don't have a team. Uh, you can't be that way. You have to do what some of these great captains, uh, as you've given us examples of, you've got to listen, you've got to ask questions, and it's got to be personal.
1: Yeah, I know. You know, the one uh, way that I've heard it described, which I think is the best description of it, is functional leadership. And that's what they did. I mean, the thing is... Duncan's a good example of this. I mean, he he switched positions. He would emphasize defense. He'd emphasize rebounding. He'd emphasize scoring, whatever the team needed at any moment. And, you know, it, it was just really about fulfilling the goals of the team. He took pay cuts during his career so they could sign better players. I mean, everything mm-hmm. he did was about, you know, the collective goals of the team. And, you know, it, it, there was no frills. There was no – he didn't care about credit. In fact, he hated it. I mean, you know – That's for sure. It, it, Well, there's that famous picture, you just Google it, of him picking up his NBA Rookie of the Year trophy, and he's got this look on his face like he's having an appendectomy. I mean, he just looks miserable, and he wore flip-flops and a t-shirt. He just hated it. Hated it. Hated Hated being singled out from the team, and Russell was the same way. Oh, I was going to say,
0: I don't think anybody hated it more than Bill Russell.
1: No, no, he turned down the Hall of Fame. I mean, you know, the Hall of Fame said they were going to induct him, and he said, you know, thanks, but I don't want to be part of it. You know, they inducted him anyway; he wasn't there, but he hated it. I mean, just did not want. And you know what he said years later? He never really explained it uh, accurate or to my satisfaction. He wrote about it in one of his books, but didn't really explain it. He finally just came out and said, you know, the Hall of Fame is silly. It's 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 about pulling an individual out of the collective and, and celebrating them. But he's like, you know, I didn't want the honor because it's not a team honor. You know, I only believe that my achievements were uh, a symbol of team play, not individual accomplishments. So that's the mindset that they all had.
0: I, I think it's a beautiful mindset. And uh, I know uh, I was just a teenager whenever I watched uh, Russell win their, their last uh, uh, championship. And at that point, he was a player coach. Uh, and there, there were very few t- times whenever uh, he let anybody into his thought process uh, of what he was talking to his team about. But the, I wonder, I, I never did the stats on it, but I cannot believe it would have been staggering to go look at how many games the Celtics won when they were trailing uh, at the end of the third quarter, but they were tra- trailing by less than uh, by nine points or less, because that was his goal. He said, "Look, we can do whatever we want to in the first three quarters. We don't have to worry about being behind. We don't have to win the game in the first, second, or third quarter. We want to be at nine or less at the end of the third quarter." And there was something, and I think you you uh, you nailed it with whenever you're starting to talk about. What made the difference in the captain? Because in his mind, uh, hey, that's five possessions. That's all we got to turn around. And we got 12 minutes to do it. And if we work as a team, we'll do that. I can't believe that's that's what he did. No, and, you
1: know, the funny thing about the Celtics, when you go and you look at their record during the regular season, I mean, you know, they don't hold a candle to the Bulls of the 90s or – you know, any of these teams. They they no. didn't have an outstanding dominating record. They didn't you know, but they knew how to win when it mattered. And you know, they, that's that's the I think the mark of a team. You know, they weren't that talented and they weren't a team of superstars. But uh, you know, they had that drive. And you know, the other thing that was really remarkable about these captains, and Russell is a great example of this, but was their relentlessness. And and I don't you know, everyone says okay, yeah, of course a great captain's relentless, but no, they were relentless in a weird extreme way and you know (laughs) explain that Sam (laughs) well my favorite well look I'm not going to tell the story about Buck Shelford from the New Zealand All Blacks (laughs) and the injury he sustained and played through because it is its a little
0: stomach-churning,
1: but you—you yeah. got to read it. I mean, no, I get it.
0: I, I, yeah, I know. Right.
1: you remember that part? Yeah. Okay. Well, no, but Russell's is a little a little more family-friendly. But so this is my favorite Russell story. So he's a rookie, right? And and he's playing in Game Seven. And this mind you, the Boston Celtics have never won a championship. This is 1957. And he—it's a Game Seven against the St. Louis Hawks, and there's a minute left. The Celtics have a one-point lead and uh, Russell gets a rebound and charges down the court and tries to dunk the ball, and he's a terrible offensive player, but you know he, he missed the dunk, and so he's underneath his own basket. Now, the Hawks took advantage of this and made a quick outlet pass to midcourt to this forward named Jack Coleman, who was just cherry-picking behind the play, and Coleman turned around. There was no one behind him. He's at midcourt with a head start. He has about three seconds to lay in the ball, and it was just everyone in the, in the arena just assumed it was a fait accompli you know, they're they're gonna take the lead with forty seconds or so left. So at this rate when he arrives to lay up the ball, this blur comes in behind him and swats the ball out of his hand and bounces it off the backboard and the Celtics recovered it. It was Bill Russell. So what Russell had done is he was underneath his own basket at dead stop. He took off and ran ninety six feet in three seconds, which was the same amount of time it took Coleman to run half as far with a head start and everyone in the it became known as the Coleman play everyone who saw it, there's no video of this play because they didn't tape the, the game back then but uh, everyone says it's the most incredible defensive effort in the history of the NBA and given that what was at stake you know it's got to be one, one of them but I mean that was an example of just you know there was nothing in it there was no statistics they did even count blocked shots this is just someone who just would rather die than lose and you saw that over and over again Russell would get so fired up before you know, even meaningless games that he would throw up in the locker room before the game because he was so nervous. In fact, if he didn't throw up, his teammates would say, Russ, go throw up. What's wrong with you? You know, so, you know it, was, it was this relentless. This, you know, what I found, I found this fascinating study that it, it was done um, – Really, two studies. One that was done by this French agricultural engineer in 1918, and he uh, had he did this experiment where he had his students pull on a rope, and he had them do it individually and then together as a team, and he measured the force they exerted. And what he found was that when they were together pulling as a team, they each pulled less hard than they did by themselves. And this is a phenomenon that's been proven time and again. They call it social loafing, which is that people don't work as hard in a collective setting usually as they do by themselves. But what another later study found was uh, the Russell effect, which is, you know, if, if they would tell these people before they did a task together that one member of the team was an extreme performer, extreme high-effort person, then that that social loafing would be erased, and everyone would work just as hard collectively as they did alone. And so, the, the the conclusion is that that kind of relentlessness is contagious. It has a contagious effect on everyone around you, and I think that. Was a key component of why these captains were so successful. They never quit. You know, it didn't I, matter if I they agree. were winning ten to nothing, if they were down ten to nothing, they just didn't quit.
0: I agree. Uh, there, there's no substitute for relentless effort, and uh, when everybody's contributing, uh, everybody is going to have more chances to win. And uh, it's so cool to read. I I absolutely love this book. It's so much fun. There's so many uh, leadership lessons in here. If we were to identify and develop those uh, people uh, on our teams that could really uh, handle these captain roles, I promise you our businesses would be better. Uh, Now, I know people are going to want to connect with you, Sam, and I don't want to go too far without just giving you a chance to share how people can learn more about your work.
1: Well, sure. Well, the book is, the Captain Class is for sale everywhere. Uh, the books are sold. But uh, I have a website, which is called buysamwalker.com, which has uh, a little more material and some of the reviews and such uh, that have come out. Um, and that's a great way. I'm also on Twitter, at Sam Walkers with an S, uh, and LinkedIn, Facebook, and all the usual social media channels. So yeah, um,
0: You got uh, it. Well, uh, for Good. those of you that are exercising today, we'll make sure we put links to the book and also to Sam's website. And uh, I encourage you to go get your copy. You're going to love this because if you have any love for business, you should be studying uh, these successful sports leaders. Uh, Sam, you go into uh, part two of the book. You talk about the seven methods of elite leaders and uh, I don't want to give away too much of that because I want people to buy their own uh, copy of this and really learn. But I happen to believe that those uh, seven uh, methods, techniques, whatever you want to call them, uh, that these elite leaders had are incredibly important uh, for all of us that are trying to achieve success. Uh, Out of those, uh, what was the one that surprised you the most that you discovered?
1: Well, I mentioned that practical communication style. I thought that was a huge shock. Um, you know, one of the ones that really surprised me, uh, that took a long time to figure out, was uh, this, this, this uh, tendency to break the rules you know, to push the rules to the absolute maximum, and I thought that was, that that was really surprising. It took me a long time, because I kept finding instances where these captains did kind of ugly things in competition, or or they, you know, did things that were really, um, uh, kind of violated the spirit of the rules. They had a tendency to get away with it, but I thought to myself, you know, what does this mean? Does it mean that you have to be kind of a thug, or really aggressive, or, uh, not have any moral compass in order to win, but, you know, I, I spent a lot of time looking into this, and, w- and what I found was that um, something that I'd never considered, which is, you know, for the longest time, I think starting with Sigmund Freud, I mean, uh, most uh, people who studied aggression thought it was a negative human impulse. It was just a purely negative thing. And, you know, but that never really fit with sports, because, you know, in sports, you've got to be aggressive. It's part of the game, right? I mean, you have mm-hmm. to do some sort of unkind things once in a while. Um, so what I, what I found is that later psychologists who studied this found, and I agree with them, that there are really two kinds of aggression. There's, and we tend to lump them together. But there's one kind, which is hostile aggression, which is something that you do really with the goal of hurting someone, you know, or inflicting pain. And then there's something they call instrumental aggression, which is an aggressive act that's um, uh, meant to further a goal and they're different you know they they're different motivations and they come from different places and often in sports we look at an aggressive act and we think uh we think they're all the same but if you look at you know my favorite example is Zinedine Zidane's headbutt in the World Cup you know he headbutted this Italian player you know And uh, it's a famous thing because it got sent off and it just killed his team and they lost the World Cup. But that was hostile aggression. That wasn't instrumental. There was no goal there. You know, that was the intent to hurt someone. And we we, kind of lumped these things in. But so what I found with these captains was, was fascinating. When I really looked closely... Yeah, they pushed the rules to the absolute maximum. They usually got away with it, you know. They they knew what they were doing, but they would they would go as far as they thought they could in order to win. But off the field, this is amazing. They were quiet. They were they never broke the rules. They were homebodies. <laughs> they were boring. I mean, they just did not want to party. They didn't do aggressive things. They they were really dull and you know that's that's a huge lesson i think we don't we don't look very often at when we're hiring and hiring managers we, we look at their their personalized and i think we all think oh hey they run triathlons and they you know they 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 they're at the disco and they you know yeah. they have a real right. you know but but these captains were so boring they would go home and sleep you know they they just they they wouldn't do anything off the field that would uh, sap their energy or um, get them in trouble I mean they saved their aggression and their energy for competition and and you know I think in business it's hard to say you know don't go out and, you can't go out and punch anybody but you know I think sometimes even in business I think you know there are people who push the rules of polite uh engagement you know and in business, and they push it to to the extreme sometimes and you know I think a lot of times people think well they're unhinged or they're out of control, but you know sit back and look at the motivation are they doing this because they think it's going to help the team perform better collectively uh, or are they doing it because they don't like someone or they're frustrated or you know i mean i think I think sometimes we we, we look at people who do things that are not really appetizing in, in, in a team setting and we just kind of write them off. But, you know, I think we need to look really closely at what the motivation was. And I thought that was really interesting.
0: It, it is very interesting. Uh, Sam, as we uh, wrap up our time, uh, today, uh, I'm curious what would be your top action items, maybe your top two action items that you'd recommend to people that are actually in the business of leading and developing other people, what would you advise them to do?
1: Well, the number one thing I would say is that the seven traits and methods that you mentioned, uh, they, are, they have nothing to do with God-given talent or ability. Nothing. I mean, it's, it's not talent, it's not charisma. These seven traits are all behaviors. Mm-hmm. They're, they're choices that we make day in and day out. And anybody, anybody can change their behavior. Everybody can improve their leadership by, by studying these behaviors and trying to emulate them. I don't think everyone can be an elite leader, but I think most of us can get a lot better. So that's the first thing. It's about behavior and choices and not talent. And Charisma and things that uh, like that, and the second thing I would say is that um, you know you need to change the way that you look at and and interview and try to hire team leaders. Uh, I think the thing that we do too often now is we look for people who seem like obvious candidates and we start there. I would argue that the best way to do it is to look at your group and think, who, if I came in this group cold, who's the last person I would identify as the leader? You know, start there and work your way up because I think you're gonna get to the right person a lot faster if you do it that way. And here's the thing too, A corollary to that, you know, uh, one of these great elite captains is not going to wow you in a job interview. In fact, they're going to downplay their contributions, and they're going to give too much credit to the people around them. uh, And they're not going to talk their way into the job. You really have to watch the way somebody interacts with people in a team setting. And that's the only way you can really know if you've got one of these characters. You You can't look at their resume and talk to them and figure out, you know, what you've got.
0: It is so true, so true, Sam. It, that's great actions and I hope all of us will uh, really take that seriously and move forward today. Uh, Sam, I wanna thank you on behalf of uh, Mojo, Manager Mojo today and our audience for sharing. Uh, congratulations uh, on your book and continued best wishes to you and all that you do. Uh, if we can help you in any way, please let us know. And thank you for being on the Manager Mojo Show today. Thanks, Steve. It's a great pleasure. Steve here. And one last reminder, I want to thank you for listening to the show. And I want to encourage you, go over to mojouniversity.com. Before you forget it, make sure you sign up for our training site. And let me be your teacher this year. I promise you, you're going to be successful. You're going to love it. Go to mojouniversity.com and sign up today.